Well, hey, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. Do me a favor. Open your Bibles up to Ephesians 2. We are hanging out in the book of Ephesians from now until uh, Easter, and I hope you've uh, been hanging out with us for this series. And while you're turning to Ephesians 2, um, I want to start out by asking a question. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where it was very, very clear that everyone else there didn't want you there? Have you ever been met with open hostility? Because if you have, you know what that feeling's like, and you know how awful it is, right? Um, I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, I was playing soccer for the JV team at Grand Haven. And uh, our JV team, we were really, really good. I think our record was like 15 and 3. And we had one of those years where just as the season went on, we got better and better and were winning and winning. And um, the problem was, is that our varsity team was not very good. And they were under 500 and they were losing. And the way, I don't know if it still works this way now, but the way it used to work was the JV game was from about 5 to 6.30. And it was on the same field as the varsity game, which would be from 7 to 8.30. So as all of the varsity parents came to get ready to watch their kids play, and as all the varsity players warmed up, they would just see us winning over and over and over again, and then they would go watch their team lose. And we even had parents come up to us, I'm not kidding, at the end of the year and be like, we would not want the varsity to scrimmage the JV because we think the JV might win. Um, So at the end of the season, the JV season's over, and the varsity coach calls three underclassmen up for playoffs. It was me and uh, two of my teammates. And and there was just three of us, and um, I vividly remember the first practice showing up. And I'm nervous. I haven't played with these kids before. They're older than me. I show up to the field, and not a single person will talk to me. The JV players warmed up by themselves. They had to do all of our drills by ourselves. No one would invite us onto their team in practice. And even in the scrimmages or in practice, they wouldn't pass to us. They were making it very obvious they didn't want us there. I even remember in uh, the first practice, there was a scrimmage, and I stole the ball from a defender, and I hit a shot that went right up into the corner. I hit a great goal, and and in that moment, not a player from the other team or my team congratulated me. They all at the same time turned it, screamed at the goalie for allowing a JV player to score on him. It was open hostility, and then on top of that, our coach screwed up our registration forms, and the JV players weren't even allowed to play in the playoff games. So we had to go to these games. They, they wouldn't sit by us on the bus, and they wouldn't talk to us in practice. We had to go watch them play, and we didn't even have a chance to play. And I remember being on the bench just praying to the Lord that he would be gracious and allow us to lose. I'm like, God, just help us lose. This is awful. Hostility is an awful thing, and that is exactly what Paul is addressing in Ephesians 2. He's talking about the issue of hostility and a church. I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table. This is one of those weekends where I have the privilege to love you by giving you the hard truth. And uh, this weekend is going to stretch many of us. This weekend, we might not leave here feeling amazing about our lives and about the world. I think what God wants to do through his word is going to be beautiful, but it's only going to happen if we really engage with a humble heart and seek to honor the Lord. So do me a favor, if you're ready to get into it, can you just help me and just tell me that you're ready? Say, I'm ready. ready. All right, let's do it. Here's the big idea. It's this. We need to confront and kill the hostility in our hearts towards others. It's that simple. We need to confront and kill 
any hostility that we have in our heart towards others. As a people who have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, there is no room and there is no excuse for us to live with hostility towards one another, regardless of the disagreements and differences we might have. Look at verse 11. It says this. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, so he's writing to the Gentiles here, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And what Paul's doing is is he's laying out the case study for us, which is hostility between the Jews and Gentiles. And Paul has planted a church in uh, Ephesus, which is a Greek city. It is filled with Gentiles primarily, and there are some Jews. And he's talking to the Gentiles, and he says, remember, you guys were called the uncircumcised by the circumcised. And what he's saying here is that that was a term that the Jews would call the Gentiles. The Jews would call the Gentiles the uncircumcised, and it was a derogatory term. It was like a slang word. And here's why. You see, the Jews, as part of being the people of God, one of their outward markers for that they were God's people is they would get circumcised. So so when the Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, they're not talking about anything physical. They're saying, you aren't God's people. You are the unclean ones. You are the unholy ones. You're the ones that God hates. That's what the term meant. Uh, Historians and commentators say there's really no way for us as Americans, that we can truly understand how much the Jews and Gentiles hated each other. The Jews believed that Gentiles existed to fuel the fires of hell, that their sole purpose in life was to live to die so that hell might have more fuel to burn. Um, It was illegal for a Jewish person to help a Gentile in labor because to help a a, a Gentile have a baby was to be guilty of bringing another heathen into the world. Like they hated each other and, and the Jews hated the Gentiles because they were unclean, they were unholy, they had occupied the, uh, the promised land, which was God's gift to the Jewish people and, and they hated them for it. And the Gentiles hated the Jews because they were arrogant, they, they wouldn't assimilate into Roman culture, and they hated everyone. It was open and deep hostility. So why was there hostility? Well, the root issue is pride. The hostility came from pride. And I want to direct your attention back to Genesis 12, when God called Abraham and said, I'm going to be the God of the Israelite nation. Do you remember what he tells Abraham? He writes this, He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Do you see that? That when God called Israel to himself, his goal, what he wanted is that Israel would be a blessing to the rest of the world. That this would be a nation that would model what it looks like to have a relationship with the creator God of the universe. And in their laws and in their festivals and in their practices, they they would distinguish themselves. But it would be to be a light to say, hey, this is what life is in relationship with God. It was to be a blessing to the rest of the world. But that is not what the Jews used it for. 
Rather than accepting that gift with humility, they became prideful over the fact they were God's people. We are better than you. You are unclean. We are clean. You are far from God. We are holy. Pride corrupted them. And church, look here. This is exactly what pride does. This is how it works. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor and theologian from New York, he writes this on Ephesians 2. He says this. He says, God has addressed one of the main problems the human race has ever had, and the problem is hate. Our problem is that when God gives good gifts, there is something in our hearts that elevate them up to an absolute value. This causes us to look at everyone else who does not have what we have, and then we look down on them. It causes us to despise them. The good gift becomes the basis for hostility. This is particularly true in groups of people, in races, cultures, classes of people. The way we get our identity, the way we define ourselves, the way we get our value or self-worth is by taking what is distinct and good about us and lifting it up and then looking down on everyone else who does not have what we have. We get our identity by excluding others, by looking down on others. This is the reason why the earth is red with human blood and has been for centuries. So it's easy to see how this played out with the Jews, right? We're God's people. We have the law. We have the temple. God's presence resides with us. Therefore, we are better. But church, listen, the Jews and Gentiles, it's only a case study, right? And the good news for us today is, is we have totally evolved and moved past the issue of hostility in our world today, right? Like that's not anywhere. No one's hostile with each other anymore. We don't even know what that could possibly look like, right? That's obviously um, a joke, right? I would argue our world is spinning into hostility faster than we can even get our heads around it. And I would argue the primary source, primarily in our society, we see hostility play out in the political spectrum, don't we? Right? I've never been alive when there's been more hostility politically between the right and the left. David Brooks, he's a Christian author and sociologist and a professor at Yale. He writes this. He says, over the last half century, we have turned politics from a practical way to solve common problems into a cultural arena to display resentments. Do you see what he's saying? He, he's saying, listen, politics now, even more than it is about how do we come together and solve problems, it's becoming more about how, how do we show how much we hate the other side. Um, if you ever want to play a depressing game, I have one for you. Um, if you ever want to play a really sad game, here's all you have to do. All you have to do is turn on the news. I don't care which station, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, whatever. And here's the game. How long will it take for one side to say something nice about the other side? Nobody ever wins. It never happens, right? right? It's very sad. I would uh, encourage you not to play it. I've talked to hundreds of people in the last few years who are so discouraged and frustrated by the hostility in our country around politics. Um, it plays out in other arenas, too. There is hostility between generations. Um, I'm 35 years old, and that puts me on the oldest part of the millennial generation. Are there any other millennials in the room? Raise your hand if you're a millennial. Um, millennials, here's what I would like to um, say. Um, people love to kick us, don't they? Like, I would argue that millennials are the most made fun of, picked on generation in American history, right? We've heard it all. You guys are soft. You guys are all snowflakes. You don't have a, a, a work ethic. You guys are so special. I heard someone say this week, this is true, they're like, your generation would have never won World War II. You guys don't have it in you. It's like, wow, that hurts. Um, and here's the thing, millennials, we kick right back. The, my favorite way we kick back right now, have you guys all um, heard the phrase, okay, boomer? 
right? It's something that young people say when older generations struggle to understand technology or understand the way life works. We say, oh, okay, boomer, I get that you don't get it and that you can't figure things out because you're old. Um, This last winter, right, when we were wrapping up our worldview series, so end of November, um, I don't know if you remember this, we ended that series with a Q&A weekend. And my dad and I were on stage and we were answering people's questions. So that means that on that Sunday, we had to travel from Spring Lake to Grand Haven, then Grand Haven back to, to Spring Lake. And uh, it was the, the nine o'clock service and my dad just had gotten a new car. And he's like, Cal, I'll drive us. You don't have to worry about driving us. We'll, we'll take my car. I'm like, great. So um, we do the, the, the Q&A and we only have about 20 minutes from when we're done preaching at the 9 to when we have to be here preaching at the 10. It takes about 12 minutes to get from campus to campus. So there's about an eight-minute cushion if everything goes well. So, so we hustle out to the parking lot, and, and we go to my dad's car, and I go to open the door, and it's locked. And I go, Dad, unlock your car. And he gets out his fob, and he's pressing buttons, and the car's not unlocking. And I'm like, Dad, unlock the car. And then all of a sudden, he's just like fumbling with his, his, his key fob thing. And he like freezes. He's like, I, I don't know. It's not listening. I don't know how to open the car. And I'm like, this is my nightmare, right? <laughs> right, time's moving. My dad can't figure out how to unlock his car, even though he's holding the key. So after about 30 seconds, I'm like, you know what? Fine, forget it. And I run back into the Spring Lake campus, and I open the door to go get my keys. And Emo's standing there, a production guy, and he's like, what are you still doing here? And I'm like, my boomer dad can't figure out how to unlock his own car, right? <laughs> right? We make fun of each other based on our differences. Our country has a brutal history with racial hostility. I don't even need to get into all of that. Um, here's one. Any hostility over vaccination statuses? Right? Like things we never thought would be a thing 10 years ago is now a predominant hostility. Right? We're even seeing national hostility with things happening in Russia, in Ukraine. There is hostility everywhere you look. So what is the solution? Well, he gives it to us in verse 13. Look what it says. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Right, the solution is Jesus Christ himself. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. Look at verse 14. It says, he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Well, what Paul is saying is is that, listen, Jesus is equally the savior for both the Jews and the Gentiles. That Jesus came and he fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the prophets and he fulfilled all of the festivals. So now relationship with God and salvation is not found through keeping laws or national identity. It is found through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that is open equally to Jews and Gentiles. He has broken down what divided you. Then look at verse 17. It says, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. When Paul's talking about those who were far off, he's talking about the Gentiles. 
He's like, before Jesus, you didn't have the law, you didn't have the temple, you didn't have the festivals, you didn't have the prophets, you knew nothing about God, you were far away. But Jesus came and brought peace, and he taught peace to those who were near. He's talking about the Jews. They had everything, but it all was pointing to Jesus. And he goes, you have the same peace in Jesus Christ. So how is Jesus the solution for the hostility? Well, church, you need to understand that Jesus fundamentally changes our identity. He changes who we are. Church, look here. Christianity is never meant to be just a part of who you are. Actually, I think the most dangerous thing you can do is just make Christianity a part of you. It has to define everything about you. It changes who we are. It changes what our hope is. It changes our purpose. It changes how we view the world. Um, Here's a question. Do me a favor. Raise your hand if you've ever been on a missions trip out of the country. All right, I, I see a lot of hands. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably been on a missions trip. Here's the power of, of missions trip. It's not the project or the work you go to do. The best part of the missions trip is hanging out with the Christians from other countries and cultures and places in the world, right? Like I went to a mission trip in Romania, and these people were just coming out of communism. Their culture and life and way they viewed the world was so different. But guess what? We hung out together, and we have the same Lord. We have the same Savior. We have the same hope, and our purpose in life was the same. And you start to realize, I have more in common with Christians living across the world in Kenya than I do my next-door neighbor, who I might go to the same school as or go to the same workplace as, but doesn't know the Lord. Well, what you're seeing is is Jesus is creating a people for himself. Church, I am a Christian first. I'm a Michigander second. I'm a Christian first. I'm a conservative or a liberal or a moderate second. I am a Christian first. I'm a millennial second. I'm a Christian first. I'm a Caucasian second. Look at verse 18. It says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in to a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So if the solution is Jesus, the call, church, is unity. Look at the words Paul uses in that passage. He uses one spirit. He says, fellow citizens, members of the household of God. He calls them family, joined together, being built together. He's saying, listen, what Jesus is doing is he is taking people who have different pasts, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures, different ways of viewing the world, and he is bringing them together, bringing peace between them under his gospel, his kingdom, and is creating this beautiful thing called the church. He's saying that in a world where, where, where everyone would tell the Jews and Gentiles, you're too different and you need to hate each other. He says, no, under my kingdom and Jesus, you will become one. Like, think about it. Wouldn't it have been way easier for Paul to go into all of these cities and plant just two different churches, a Jewish church and then a Gentile church? There probably would have been way less fighting. 
They would have agreed on what to eat and, and what customs to follow. It, it would have brought way less tension, but that's not what Paul does. He says, no, under the person and work of Jesus, what God is doing is, is he is taking those who are separated and he is making them into one people. Did you know that in the first few centuries when Christianity was still illegal? So in 350 AD, Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome. Before then, for most of that time, Christianity was illegal and Christians were facing horrible persecution. They were being fed to lions, they were being crucified, they were being thrown in prison. And did you know in that time, one of the things that was so attractive about the movement of Christianity was that it was the only place in Roman society where Jews and Greeks and people of different ethnicities and classes um, got together and loved each other and cared for each other and had relationship with one another. It was happening nowhere else. The love of people who were different was a foundational mark of Christianity, and they had to love each other. They had no one else. So church, can I ask a brutally honest question? Is that still what defines the church today in America? a love for people who we disagree with on things? Or is this something that we have lost in our culture with all of its freedoms? Okay, so here's what I want to do. I've laid out the what in Ephesians 2, and now I want to get really, really practical and talk about, all right, what does it look like to confront and kill the hostility in our hearts? So, so here's the first thing that's going to have to happen if we're actually going to do this. Um, there has to be a sincere desperation for and devotion to Jesus. If we are going to kill the hostility that lives in us, there has to be a sincere desperation for and devotion to Jesus. I want to tell you a little bit of my story. Um, so I grew up a church rat. My dad was an elder at the church I grew up in as long as I can remember. I went to every church event. I, I was in youth group. I, I did it all. And, and here's what I would say. When, if you've grown up in the church, you've been told over and over and over again that you really should read your Bible, right? How many of you have heard that in church before? Hey, you need to read your Bible. You need to have a devotional life. And, and, and if I can be honest, for so long, I just viewed that as cosmic homework, it's like, okay, so this is just a task that I have to complete if I want God to be happy with me. And I wasn't getting much out of it, and, and I didn't really like it, and I just thought I was failing all the time because I wasn't doing it well enough. Well, my heart and attitude has changed on that, and, and here's what I would tell you. At the age of 35, I, I, I'm telling you, I am just desperate to get myself near to Jesus. And the best way I know how to do that is to get into his word. And, and here's why I'm desperate. Because I know, am I getting a bad feedback right now? Are you guys hearing a ring? No, not too bad? Okay. Here's what I know, that my heart is so prideful and selfish that if I am not near to Jesus Christ, I'm going to make a mess of my life. That my heart, I'm going to do what's easy. I'm going to gravitate to what is safe and what I know. And if I am really going to love and pursue people who are difficult to love and who I disagree with, I have to get close to Jesus. Like, listen, if there was anyone in the history of the world who had the right to be hostile and to hate us, it was Jesus. We were his enemies. We shake our fist at him. And what did he do? He came and he drew near. And he loved us, and he served us, and he sacrificed himself so that we might have life. And by the way, Jesus went out of his way to hang out with absolutely everyone. 
He hung out with the Jews. He hung out with the Samaritans. He hung out with the rich. He hung out with the poor. He hung out with the slaves. He hung out with the rulers. He hung out with the religious and the socially unacceptable. Anyone who believes that Jesus doesn't call us to leave our comfort zone and to love those who are different or who we don't agree with fundamentally doesn't understand the ministry of Jesus. But my heart left to itself is so selfish that I will gravitate towards what's easiest. Um, if you were with us last week, Taylor listed up uh, uh, the three enemies of the soul. I have them up here. Go to the next slide. The three enemies of the soul are the devil, our flesh, and the world. And, and here's what I would say. Um, these things, from the second we open our eyes in the morning to the second we close them at night, are absolutely at war with us, and they're trying to get us to live for ourselves and to give in to pride and, and to shake our fists at the Lord. So how do we battle those things? Right? For so long, I would hear Paul say things like, we need to fight the good fight, and that the Christian life is a, a war uh, against the, the, the spirit of the world. And I'm like, how do you engage in the fight? Well, listen, church, the spiritual disciplines are us fighting. How do I fight my flesh and, and, and the world? I get near to Jesus. And I carve out time in my life to get alone somewhere quiet and to intake his word, let him speak to me and pray and ask for help and say, God, I need your spirit to work in me because left to myself, I'm going to live selfishly. And I know some of you are looking at me and you're like, all right, Cal, what you're saying is, is if I don't want to be hostile, I just need to get alone and pray and read the Bible. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Fasting, prayer, memorization, that is how we engage. And there's so many of us who are getting swallowed up by the enemies of our soul because we've never even picked up a sword and tried to engage in the battle. James 4 promises us that when we draw near to God, that he will draw near to us. Okay, here's the second thing we need to do. We need to be so careful on what we make majors. We need to be so careful on what we make majors. All right, and listen, I need you to hear me right now. I am not minimizing differences in convictions. People have convictions on all sorts of things. I have convictions on politics and on theology and, and all of these things. I am not minimizing those at all. In fact, I'm very, very scared about people who live their life with no convictions. Convictions are important. I'm not saying they don't matter, all right? So just do me a favor, help me out. Turn to the person next to you and say, he's not minimizing convictions. All right, Thank you. You can miss me with that email this week. I'm not saying those things don't matter. Here's what I am saying. I am saying it's important not to, or it's important to guard against making every difference a major. All right, can I play this out? There's people in this room right now in our church who have strong convictions on alcohol. There are some in this church who are like, it is wrong to drink. It doesn't lead anywhere good. You should not drink. There's others in our church like, no, under freedom in Christ and liberty, I can enjoy alcohol. It's a good thing. You got to be careful. You have to be responsible, but it's not wrong to drink. There's disagreement in this church. And here's the thing. It's good to have convictions on those, but that should not be something that destroys unity. That's something we cover in grace and love because it's not a major. It's a Christian wisdom issue. Right? We have differences on theology. There are people who've been our, at our church for 10 years who fundamentally disagree with how we do baptism. They're like, I think you're wrong. I disagree on how you do baptism, but it's not something to break unity over. I know you guys love God's word. I love the worship. I love the preaching. This is one area we disagree on, and it's okay. We can cover that in love. 
Um, here's one. You remember a couple weekends ago in Ephesians 1, I was preaching on the issue of um, predestination and God's sovereignty versus free will? Do you remember in that message I said, hey, good Christians have disagreed on this for thousands of years and this is not something to fight about? You want to know why I said that? Because I know you all were going to go fight about it in small group. Right? And there's a bunch of nervous laughter because guess what happened? You all went and fought about it in small group, right? As if that was going to be the place the 2,000-year debate was finally solved, right? It's good to have convictions. It's good to hold positions. But when you make them majors, you're elevating them to a place. When you say, man, I can't be in relationship with you unless you see eye to eye with me, you have made it a major. And unfortunately, this attitude and growing hostility has been a growing trend in the American church in the last few years. Ed Stetzer, he's a professor at Wheaton College, and he's one of the leading missiologists in the country. And what that means is he looks at the macro trends of what's happening in the church in America across all denominational lines. What are people in the church doing? How healthy is the church? What's happening? And he calls what has happened in the American church since the beginning of this pandemic, he calls it the great sort. Here's what he writes. He says, huge numbers of people have moved from church to church for reasons only tangentially related to the pandemic. For example, some people left their church because their church wore masks. Others left their church because the church did not wear masks. They sorted themselves into churches that followed their view of masking. Some people left churches because they heard the name George Floyd, others because they did not hear his name. Some people left churches because the Sunday after the U.S. presidential election, the pastor prayed for the former Vice President Joe Biden. Others left churches because the pastor didn't pray for President Biden. This is heartbreaking on many levels, but certainly one of the more lamentable realities is that people left their church, churches that they had been members at for years or even decades over either minor disagreements or major political differences. Do you see what he's saying? He, he's saying that in the church, what has happened is that we have elevated political issues, issues around the pandemic or social issues and said, these are majors. And unless you agree with me, I can't be in relationship with you. And so rather than unity or, or the gospel or theology or doctrine or worship or commitment to a church for sometimes generations, it said, no, those aren't the important things. The important things are the social issues of today. And if I can be honest with you, when I see what's happening in America, and then I hold up what Paul calls us to in Ephesians 2, when he takes people that couldn't be more different, and they disagreed on everything, and he calls them to live in harmony and to be one, I think the American church, in a lot of ways, has adopted the spirit of the age. I don't think we've honored Christ well these last few years. And church, hear me, there are for sure majors. Like, there are for sure things to draw hard lines on. Here's one. The authority of God's word is a major, right? Like, Brett, if you and I disagree on whether or not God's word is true, there's not going to be a foundation for us to even have a discipleship relationship with one another. How do we hold each other accountable if we don't even have the same foundation on what is true? Here's one, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like if you're here today and you don't believe that Jesus was fully God, fully man, died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty that we deserved, and is alive and reigning, defeated sin, defeated death, and is coming back again, 
then we fundamentally see the world differently and it's going to be hard for us to live in a Christian community together because our views of reality are different. The return of Christ is a major. There's certain aspects of the Holy Spirit that are majors that there needs to be agreement on. But church, hear me, there are way more minors than there are majors. And if we're going to honor Christ and pursue unity, we're going to have to lead with patience, humility, and grace in the disagreements over the minors. Unity is more important. Here's the third thing we need to do. We need to fight against fragility. We need to be a people that are not so fragile. We live in a culture that more and more tells us to block or cancel people who disagree with us, and we need to reject that narrative. There are people in Mary and I's life who we are close with, and we disagree on a lot. We disagree on politics, we disagree on the vaccine, we disagree on parenting, we disagree on sports teams. And church, can I tell you a secret? It's okay. Like, we survived. Like, we can still love each other and we can still be friends. And by the way, we talk about our differences and we tease each other about our differences. But at the end of the day, we are fiercely committed to one another because we are one under the banner of Jesus Christ. And they love the Lord and are trying to live that out and honor him. And so are we. And we are more alike because we have Christ than we are what is differences. And we're not going to let secondary differences dent our unity in Christ. Like, listen, people are going to disagree with you on stuff. It's part of being a human. People will vote differently. People are going to parent differently. People are going to have different convictions on how to apply Scripture than you. The question is, is do we get in our trenches and draw firm lines around everything, or do we lead holding up unity? Um, I think there's a couple of phrases we need to reclaim. Like, here's a phrase that I love. Um, I love you, and I think you're wrong. That's okay. It's okay to tell someone, listen, I love you, and I care for you, and you're wrong on that. But I still love you, and it's not going to change the nature of our relationship. Here, here's another good one that, that we can use. Help me understand how you got there. Like, I love you, and I'm listening, and I know you love the Lord. And I know you're trying to honor him. We disagree on these things. Help me understand your thought process. I, I, I want to hear. Don't just get defensive and angry. We need to pursue unity. And church, think about it. If we are ever going to have a witness for Christ, don't we need to engage with people who don't think like us? Like, by definition, unbelievers don't believe that Jesus is the hope of salvation. They don't believe that he is Lord. They, they, they don't believe that he is the Messiah. So if we are going to be a light for Christ and win people to the Lord, we're going to have to risk being told that we're crazy and that people don't agree with us and that we're wrong. It's okay. It is good for our hearts and minds and witness to lovingly engage with people who we disagree with and model spirit-empowered, Christ-like love that transcends our differences. This is exactly what Paul is calling the church to in Ephesians 2. Okay, and then here's the last thing we need to do. We need to rightly feel the weight of our calling. We need to rightly feel the weight of our calling. Uh, in John 17, right before Jesus leaves and, and is finishing his earthly ministry, he prays for his disciples, and not just the 12, but all that would follow after him. He's praying for us, and here's what he says. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
And I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't it amazing that the thing that was on Jesus' heart right before he ended his earthly ministry was our unity? He says, the way that the world will know that we are different and that we are followers of Jesus and that Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life is how we put our differences aside and genuinely love one another. And by the way, the early church modeled this beautifully for us. It's good to have convictions, but on everything that's not a major, we need to lead with grace and love and humility. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take patience. It's going to take kindness. It's going to take grace. You won't be treated perfectly in the process, and you won't handle everything perfectly. But it's what we've been called to in Christ. And so, church, here's what I would say as I wrap up. Um, I come to you this morning actually really hopeful. I don't come angry. I don't come frustrated or defeated. I'm actually really hopeful, and here's why. Because as I talk to so many of you, here's what I hear over and over and over again. I hate the hostility in our world, and I hate the hostility in the church, and there has to be a better way forward. We do need to realign ourselves to what is important and what is primary. We need to model love. And in church, here's the other thing I would say. I am so convinced and confident that the message of Jesus and the way of Jesus is what everyone in the world is looking for. Like, think about it. It is only in the gospel and in the message and way of Jesus that we are told that we are created by God, that our life has intrinsic value, that we are loved, that we are known. It is only in the message of the gospel that we can make sense of the brokenness of our world. That even though God created what was good, it is our sin and rebellion against God that has fractured our creation. But God didn't leave us to ourselves like we deserve, but even in our sin, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we were enemies of God, he came and he loved and he served and he died so that we might have life and that offer for life is available. And church, we have a worldview that ends in eternity with a happy ending with us reconciled with God and with one another in perfection without sin. And what we're called to right now is to live lives that are to the best of our power is reconciled to God and to one another. So here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And... Um, as much as you can, pretend like you and I were having a conversation right now. Pretend I was talking to you directly. I want to be as pastoral as I can right now. And I just want to ask you this question. Where does your heart tend to turn hostile? Who do you tend to live with hostility towards? Maybe it's a certain person. Maybe it's a group of people. And I just want to ask you this. How do you think Jesus would treat that person or those people if he was with them today in person? Would he be hostile towards them? Would he be shaking their fist? Would he be condemning? Or would he do the same thing he did for you and me? Would he wash their feet? Would he love them? Would he engage in them? Would he show them the kindness and grace of God? 
And and church, I, I think so often when we do the simple thing and say, how would Jesus love that person? How would Jesus treat that person? What would Jesus do? It makes things really, really clear, doesn't it? And so I'm going to ask you right now, if you're living with hostility, would you repent of that before the Lord? Right? Would you ask God, change my mind on these things. I need your help. Empower me to live with the same love that you've shown me. May I show that love to others. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. God, I'm thankful for a difficult word. I'm thankful for you showing us two groups of people that in every way despised each other, yet were brought together in unity through the power of the gospel. And God, that's what our world needs to see. Our world needs to see that there is a way to love one another and engage with one another with kindness and grace, even if we disagree on almost everything. Would we lead the way in that? Would we model the example that was laid before us through Jesus and the disciples in the early church? Would we be known by our love for you and our love for one another? We love you and need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.